Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Kamarasamy, and one country dominates this edition of the programme. Russia. Later on, we'll be getting the latest on the poisoning of a former Russian double agent on British soil. We'll also be hearing about the suspicion in Washington that President Trump might be laying the social media groundwork for pulling the plug on the investigation into Russia's alleged interference in the 2016 US presidential election. But we begin in Moscow itself, where, to the surprise of precisely no one, Vladimir Putin has won another six years in power. And in the shadow of the Kremlin's imposing red brick walls tonight, a flag-waving crowd was treated to a festive concert, a very Russian celebration of a Russian brand of democracy. Well, just like the music on stage, the script for this election was written well in advance. Although there were eight candidates and 100 million potential voters across 11 time zones, only one man was ever going to win. And about an hour or so ago, he appeared on stage. It's very important to keep this unity. It's very important to attract those who could have voted for other candidates. This unity is important for us to move forward and we need to work as one team. We are not going to go with the wind. We are going to think about the future of our great country, about the future of our children. And acting this way, we will definitely achieve success. Yes, thank you very much. Together, we will start doing a great job for Russia. Thank you. President Putin there. Well, the only question of this election was uh, by how much would he win and thanks to the votes of how many people. Well, let's start with the answers to those questions. We're joined from Moscow by our correspondent, Sarah Rainsford. I mean, Sarah, the votes aren't all in yet, but we've got a pretty good idea, haven't we? Well, certainly enough for Vladimir Putin to come out and declare an emphatic victory there on the stage, as you just heard. Uh, He is now polling around about 75% of the vote counted so far, and the turnout is looking at around 60%. And that puts him a massive, massive leap ahead of his nearest rival, who's the communist candidate Pavel Grudinin, who was polling last time I looked at around about 13%. So uh, a huge victory, uh, as predicted, of course, for Vladimir Putin, but significant bigger than last time. Back in 2012, uh, he got 63% of the vote there. Um, so uh, that was uh, that's a big leap up then to 75%, if that's the way it stays uh, after the final votes are counted. That's on around about half of the votes counted so far. But as you know, the tendency is pretty clear and the, the distance between him and his nearest rival is so huge to make it absolutely impossible for anyone to get anywhere close. I remember watching him six years ago when he appeared on stage. might even have been the same stage. Um, There appeared to be a tear in his eye at one point. He seemed rather emotional. Um, This time, he looked pretty pumped up. He looked um, pretty emphatic, I'd say, wouldn't you? I think that's right. And, you know, he also had this sort of kindly uncle kind of look about him, which he's been cultivating for the last uh, few weeks. We've been seeing him uh, going around and meeting uh, factory workers, for example, and hospital workers. And he's had this sort of benevolent air about him, which uh, is is something new, I think. He's trying to show a little bit of the softer side of Vladimir Putin. And today he was talking on stage about being united and this country staying united. He was thanking his voters for their support and saying uh, that it was a, a 
vote of confidence in his uh, last six years in power. And also he said it was a vote of hope for the future for this great nat- nation. And he talked about uh, everyone working together for that great nation. So uh, obviously uh, happy to be re- re-elected, uh, although that wasn't in doubt. But as I say, this, this kind of uh, slightly softer side of Vladimir Putin, which people at home are seeing, which of course uh, uh, around the world people don't see. What people see around the world is the image he projects there, which is of this very strong leader, a very aggressive uh, front that Vladimir Putin tends to put on to the rest of the world. But as I say, at home, it's a rather different face. Sarah, uh, do stay with us. Sarah Rainsford there in Moscow. But we're now going to just hear um, a little slice of Election Day life from the Southern Republic of Dagestan, because Max Seddon from the Financial Times newspaper has uh, spent the day there. It's in the Caucasus region in the south of the country. And just after polls closed, he spoke to me from outside a polling station in the town of Kaspisk. This is one of the places that has historically had some of the highest turnout and the highest returns for Putin. Judging by what observers have said, absolutely all of the worst violations have happened here. I I spoke to several election observers who were beaten up by by teams of goons. Basically, there's this phenomenon called carousel voting when groups of people go around in a bus and they go from polling station to polling station to vote as many times as they can. And when they when they burst into these these polling stations, one of these is actually on, on video. You can find it on, on Twitter. They they basically beat up and bruised these election observers and they went and stuffed the ballot and then they uh, distracted the election observers so that the polling station workers, which you could see on video from the surveillance footage, could then stuff the ballot some more. And then just just now here in uh, Kaspisk, I actually got to see a ballot being stuffed myself. So I feel quite honored because it was uh, I was basically used as the kind of trigger for this. Uh, it's not every day you got someone like me in the Kaspisk polling station. So they sent two pretty girls and two very annoying men to come and try to talk to me uh, where I was sitting where the observers were. And this was supposed to create a distraction so that none of them could see this young woman come in and stuff the ballot box, which which they then did. And the uh, election observer tried to drag her away. Uh, the other 15 people in the polling station are all pretending they didn't see anything, even though I had a completely clear view of her stuffing must have been at least 20 papers into the ballot box. And now she's claiming that the uh, election observer uh, assaulted her, which he did not, as far as I could see. Pretty egregious by the sound of things. I mean, who are who are these observers? Brave people by the sound of things. Yeah, it's um, just a small number of local people. So I've I've spent today with this uh, with people in the mobile groups because there are you know one thousand nine hundred and something polling stations across the whole of Dagestan, and there are only about seventy independent observers plus some um, a handful who who have come down from Moscow and Saint Petersburg and other cities uh, where the the outcome is more predetermined. They feel like they can be more useful here but it's it's mostly just these local dagestani guys who are who are trying as much as they can to uh record these violations what you get is this very very interesting process where at the at the last elections uh for parliament in 2016 uh they they recorded turnout at the polling stations where they had monitors of about 23%. And all the polling stations where they didn't have monitors had a turnout of 90%. So that gives you an idea of how things have been going down here. You've certainly put in the miles during this election campaign, Max. Are you reading your report from Yakutia? Very, very 
remote part of Russia, people living these, these sort of isolated lives. What's your impression of these elections and in terms of the, the actual effort that has gone into them? I mean, I mean it does seem as that there has been quite a lot of time, effort and money gone into organising them. Yeah, that's the remarkable thing. You know, they spend billions and billions of rubles on running these elections. They do things like I saw where they will fly a helicopter out to somewhere that's in the middle of nowhere in the frozen Arctic so that three reindeer herders can vote for Putin. And on the one hand, you think this seems slightly pointless exercise, given that the outcome is predetermined and that costs a lot of money. But if you want to look for optimism in these elections, I think that's where you would do it, is, is that Russia has this um, gigantic, diverse and, uh, and fascinating society where often they have to go to these uh, great and unusual lengths for people to vote. And uh, were they to have a more competitive election at some point, this would be something where I think we'd all be saying, oh, how great it is that you know, this is really democracy in action. That They've made so much effort just so that these people who live in the middle of nowhere can vote. That was Max Seddon from the Financial Times. Uh, Sarah Rainsford still in Moscow for us. Uh, Sarah, you've you've been out and about yourself as well uh, to Perm. Uh, just to recommend your piece on the BBC website, actually looking at that part of Russia and, and what is likely to come in this uh, next six years of President Putin. But uh, when you hear about those irregularities that uh, that Max managed to witness himself, what do you think? Will anyone actually care? I think they will because um, don't forget in the last after the last election, uh, in fact it was the Duma elections, the last Duma elections uh, back in 2011, the massive uh, evidence, the video evidence, in fact, of uh, vote rigging is what brought big crowds of people out onto the streets, and that's where the figure of uh, Alexei Navalny really emerged as a as a major opposition figure, and he's already talking about unprecedented violations and vote rigging this time. So I feel fairly sure that he's going to react to that uh, in terms of of protests and and uh, objection, certainly legal objections. I imagine he'll probably call people onto the streets at some point. I know that this is something that obviously the Kremlin wanted to avoid because uh, those scenes, those mass protests, were the biggest that Russia had seen uh, for a very long time. And uh, it certainly took the edge off President Putin's re-election last time. Uh, So this was what I think the Kremlin really wanted to avoid. They actually wanted to avoid mass vote rigging. They wanted just to get people out to vote for Mr. Putin because they wanted to. They wanted also to to get as many state workers to the polls as possible, uh, pretty much obliging them to vote for Vladimir Putin. They didn't want this to be an election uh, full of ballot stuffing because there are now, because of the the violations at the last elections, there are now CCTV cameras in almost every uh, polling station around the country. So the chances of those uh, violations being fixed on camera were pretty high. And of course, the chance then of that sparking protest is also high. So, uh, you know, I I think there will be a reaction. I think the Kremlin will be hoping it can be a a relatively small one. But, you know, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what Alexei Navalny in particular now does with with this evidence of uh, some vote rigging. We don't know how much. And although President Putin... Uh, in his initial remarks at least, was concentrating on the future. He also, Sarah, made some comments, I think the first ones he's made publicly, about an issue we're going to be coming back to later on in the programme, which is the uh, poisoning of the former uh, Russian double agent, uh, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter here in the UK. What did he have to say? 
Well, that's right. This is his first substantive comment on the case at all. And he made these comments to a very select group of journalists uh, after the election. Unfortunately, we weren't invited. And possibly that's because uh, Steve Rosenberg, my colleague, did try to ask him about Sergei Skripal a few days ago. And Mr. Putin simply said that uh, once uh, we'd sorted that out back in Britain, as he put it, then he would talk. Well, now he is talking. And essentially, he is dismissing any Russian involvement whatsoever. He said that if uh, the nerve agent that the UK says was used in this attack uh, was indeed a chemical warfare agent, then the two uh, people affected would have died on the spot. He said that was obvious. He said Russia didn't have any such uh, agents, any such nerve agents. He said Russia had destroyed all its chemical weapons uh, some time ago, unlike, he said, some of our partners. Uh, He also said that it was absolute nonsense that Russia was involved and it was absolute nonsense to think that anybody would have allowed such a thing uh, given that the elections that we've seen today were coming up and given that Russia is about to host the World Cup. So Mr Putin said it was simply unimaginable that Russia had anything to do with this. So a fairly strong denial, uh, rebuttal and all the rest of it from Vladimir Putin in his first substantial comments on the case. Sarah, thanks very much. That was the BBC's Sarah Rainsford there in Moscow. We're going to have plenty more reaction on that election result. And uh, as uh, we have discussed, we'll also be hearing about the Sergei Skripal case. And we'll also uh, have one other aspect, what President Trump has been talking about in America, about the Russia investigation there. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. Well, let's get some reaction now to President Putin's victory in the Russian election. I've been speaking to Daria Sharova. She's the International Secretary of the Young Guard of United Russia, the youth wing of the pro-Putin party. I actually am super happy and I have an amazing mood. If you could see me right now, you will see that I'm smiling with the, from one ear to another ear. Um, I feel very excited. I'm uh, very happy today and uh, will be very happy tonight because my country chose the future. Uh, the young people in the country choose their future and uh, how many people vote in favor of the President Putin means that our society is uh, unified with this idea and uh, society which is not broken, which is unified, it is something, that's something great, you know. Why do you say he is the future? He's been in power either as president or as prime minister since the turn of the century, since uh, New Year's Eve 1999. How can he represent the future? You know that it's good to maintain good things. Uh, so why should we change him if everything what he is doing is he is doing in favor of Russia, for Russia, for the Russian citizens, uh, for the Russian people, and uh, we can see it in our life. We can see how Russia with these uh, uh, years of his uh, mandates uh, changed, and this is the good, great results which he showed to us. I'm expecting much more what we have already from him. Is the key then to his popularity stability that people in Russia who are tired, perhaps people younger than you, who who lived through the 1990s, still remain tired of upheavals and think that Mr. Putin is the man who can, can keep Russia on a stable path? I remember uh, my parents and I talk with them and I know what they say to me. Uh, how was the life in the 90s? And uh, people, a lot of people still voting for Putin to don't come back at that times. Because you don't uh, worry that tomorrow you will wake up and you will have nothing to eat as we had in the 90s, for example. He bring to Russia, you know, this strong patriotic feelings which we lost during the 90s. Uh, he asked 
the international community and the world to respect uh, Russia, to respect our position, to respect our ideas. And uh, that's what unify people, you know, these ideas of patriotism uh, is something that's very strong in our society and uh, maybe it's something that doesn't understand people from abroad. For that you have to know the Russian history, you know. <laughs> you say he has brought a sense of pride, of patriotism to the country. What in the next six years would you like to see him do as a matter of priority? No, I'm sure we will work on the economical uh, relations, or an economical uh, growing and economically potential uh, more and more. I think we will work on developing the business, on the developing, let's say, the middle class, to developing our maybe um, infrastructures and IT technology, because it's the future, uh, to develop, of course, and open Russian education, uh, this year, I think, uh, was uh, like uh, the pr present touch of the foreign students which uh, start to study in Russia getting higher. So I think we will work on it more. There is uh, some uh, special, uh, uh, special procedures for the foreign students to get easily visa to Russia. You know, there is not so easy so, to get... So you, you want a more open Russia, do you? Yeah, I think we will go for a more open Russia. That was Daria Sharova, a supporter of Vladimir Putin. Well, uh, someone with a less rosy view of what's happened is Michael McFall. He was the U.S. ambassador to Russia between 2012 and 2014. He's just written a book about his time there called From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. What does he make of this election? I was ambassador in Russia when he won his last election, and, and that one was a kind of hard-fought one. Some even said he had a tear in his eye, whether that was from the wind or emotion, we don't know. This election was not a hard-fought one. Uh, we all knew the results well ahead of time, and so not much drama whatsoever this time around. And without the drama, is there any significance, if you like, of this election? The significance for me is it just underscores how tragic the breakdown of democracy in Russia has been over the years. But you wouldn't doubt that he is by far the most popular politician in Russia at the moment? Of course he's popular, but it's easy to be popular when uh, there's no competition, when you control all the media, when the parliament is a rubber stamp. You know, with all those advantages, it's, it's not that hard to get uh, three quarters of the vote. But uh, yes, of course, it is true that with those instruments of power in his hand, he has reaffirmed that most Russians uh, support him. And, and I think that is also true. And he's out there talking about the future. What, what do you think the future holds internationally? for the latest Putin presidency? Well, I hope that this could present a window of opportunity to resolve some big lingering questions. And first and foremost, what is happening in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass and the conversations that there have been about maybe this will be a moment where he can now get serious about resolving uh, that crisis and, and pulling out of Ukraine. I fear, however, that that's more optimism than I share, that the converse could equally be true. In fact, I think it is true that this election now gives him confidence, people support him. And so why would he change course, uh, given that he's just received a mandate to continue what he's already been doing? Domestically, though, he needs to keep people happy, doesn't he? If he wants to continue to be popular and perhaps at some point to hand over to someone else, do you think that he will calibrate his foreign policy? Because it's starting to have an impact domestically, isn't it? 
Well, again, I hope that to be true. And by the way, it should be noted that, you know, in my conversations with senior government officials in different places, uh, I can't travel to Russia anymore. I'm on the sanctions list, but I see people and talk to people. The signal they give is wait till the election happens and then we're going to have a new government. We're going to start on tough reforms and we're going to begin to repair our relations with the West. That's that's a message I've heard many times. But I'm skeptical because that kind of decision would take courage. That kind of decision would admit that the previous course was not working. Therefore, I'm not sure that uh, Vladimir Putin will choose it. And to those that say, well, people are suffering, they need this rapprochement with the West to help with economic growth, I would just remind people that There are lots of autocracies in the world that have lived on for decades in not providing that kind of economic growth to their people. So it is not a it's not axiomatic that a certain level of economic growth is needed by autocratic regimes uh, to, to keep in power. So how does the outside world, the West in particular, deal with him? One, I think we need to come to grips with who Mr. Putin is, what his regime is about and the belligerent foreign policy that he is willing to practice, whether that is annexation in Ukraine, the war to prop up a brutal dictator in Syria, to interfere and violate our sovereignty and our elections, or to allegedly, uh, but the evidence seems pretty overwhelming, to attempt an assassination with a nerve agent in, in the UK. And those are just several things that he's done recently. And I think there's been a reluctance in the West to connect all those dots and to say, we have to have a more serious policy of containment of what Putin is doing in the world. And I say that tragically. It's not like I want to go back to some Cold War position, but I think the only way we will be able to deal effectively with Putin is from a position of strength and a position of pushing back on these things. When he violates some of the most basic norms of our international system, we have to push back. And that was Michael McFall, the former US ambassador to Russia. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour, coming to you live from London with James Kimarasamy. Coming up next, we'll have more reaction to Russia's election and we'll get the latest on Russia's confrontation with the UK. First, though, the latest on the investigation in the United States into Russia's alleged involvement in its 2016 presidential election and growing concerns this weekend in some quarters that President Trump might be preparing the ground to take action against the man leading that probe, the former head of the FBI, Robert Mueller. Well, the BBC's Chris Buckler in Washington brought me up to speed on Mr Trump's latest social media interventions. President Trump has been talking specifically about the special counsel investigation into Russian interference in the US election back in 2016. People will have heard that time and time again. But today he has been back at it, describing it as a witch hunt, saying the Mueller probe should never have been started. And that is starting to catch people's ears, not least because yesterday, following the firing of the deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, His own personal lawyer, his personal attorney, John Dowd, said that as far as he was concerned, he believed that the investigation should be brought to an end, that it should be shut down. Now, he later clarified that he wasn't speaking directly on behalf of the president, although he indicated earlier that that he had been, but he said he was speaking on his own behalf. 
But it's raising concern in Washington that President Trump now has Robert Mueller's investigation in his sights, that he wants to, for it to end, he wants for it to shut down. And this, of course, comes amid all of this kind of question about exactly what Robert Mueller is now looking at, because it started on this issue of Russian interference, but it's gone out in various different directions. And only this week we saw him asking the Trump organisation itself for a number of documents, in fact, issuing subpoenas demanding those documents. So alarm bells ringing in some quarters. But what about in the the Republican Party itself? Because various senators have been out on the Sunday shows. What kind of message have they been sending? Well, I think what's interesting is that there are some Republican senators putting their head above the parapet and saying, you know what, we're a bit concerned about this. Jeff Flake is a Republican senator and it It is worth saying that he is no fan of Donald Trump. He has been an outspoken opponent of Donald Trump, but he is within the Republican Party. And he's been saying, you know, I don't know what the designs are on Mueller, but it seems to be building toward that. And what he means is building towards the firing of Robert Mueller himself. And he says that's something that, that Congress just cannot accept. Similarly, we've had another Republican senator, Lindsey Graham, out doing the rounds today And he's made the case that, essentially, if there was legitimate reason to fire Robert Mueller, that's fine. But without that, he says if Donald Trump tried to do it, it would be the beginning of the end of his presidency, and I'm quoting here, because we're a rule-of-law nation. So you get the real sense that perhaps President Trump is trying to find out how far he can push it. And that was the BBC's Chris Buckler talking to me from Washington, D.C. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from London with James Kamara Sami. And our main news today is that Vladimir Putin is on track for a landslide victory in Russia's presidential election. He's on course to get around three quarters of the vote and will serve a fourth term as president. Well, performers from all generations have taken part in a celebratory concert in the shadow of the Kremlin. Well, a love song there to Russia, a Russia, her soul, she sings. Well, not all Russians are happy, though. Just a few hundred yards from the singing flag-waving crowd is a spot where the prominent opposition figure Boris Nemtsov was shot and killed in 2015. Now, his daughter, Jana Nemtsova, gave the BBC her reaction to the election result. She spoke to us from Brussels. We all do not regard it as a real election. And one of the reasons is that uh, there was no real competition because Alexei Navalny, the main opposition leader, was not allowed to participate. He was barred from participation. And all other presidential candidates, uh, to my mind, they uh, they had or they still have some ties with the Kremlin. They were not really independent. It's not an election, but it's rather a referendum. So he got what he wanted to have. I don't regard it as good news. And we will have President Putin for another six years as president of Russia. Jana Nemsova. Well, these young people in Moscow were happy. 
It's amazing. The man has dedicated all his life and all his strength for the last 20 years to the development of our country. It's visible on every level, both in foreign and internal policy results. I'm very happy. I think that six years isn't the longest term, and I hope that in six years he is elected again and he will rule right to the end. Well, we'll talk more about uh, another Putin term in the Kremlin and what that will mean for the international community later in the programme. But this election has, of course, taken place against a rather poisonous international backdrop, with Russia facing accusations of having carried out a state-sponsored nerve agent attack on English soil. Today, the former Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia are still lying in hospital, and the UK-Russian verbal tit-for-tat has been continuing. My colleague Andrew Ma asked Russia's ambassador to the European Union, Vladimir Chizhov, whether Russia was responsible for the attack. Well, this whole case is based on assumptions, based on suspicions fueled by emotions. Actually, the Russian side, through the embassy in London, requested access to evidence, if any, if there is any, to the nerve agent from the very beginning, from the first day, but was flatly refused. This is a very obscure nerve agent, not much understood around the world. Um, has Russia ever produced this agent, Novichok? No. Never? No. Actually, uh, Russia has stopped uh, production of any chemical agents back in 1992. And according to the International uh, Convention on Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, last year, in 2017, Russia destroyed all its stockpiles. There is only one country today which hasn't done so, which is still retaining its chemical stockpiles, and that is the United States of America. Can I be absolutely clear, then? Russia has no stockpiles of any nerve agents, whatever. Indeed, no stockpiles whatsoever. So then there is the question, how did this agent come to be used in Salisbury? It has been suggested, for instance, that during the dissolution of the Soviet Union, some of this agent may have been stolen or sold and ended up in the hands of either criminal gangs or other state parties. What's your view? Well, uh, why don't you ask yourself the question, why, how come the British authorities so quickly uh, managed to designate the nerve agent used as something called Novichok. When you have a nerve agent or whatever, uh, you check it against certain samples that you retain in your laboratories. And Porton Down, as we now all know, is the largest military facility in the United Kingdom that has been dealing with chemical weapons research. And it's actually only eight miles from, from Salisbury. Russia's ambassador to the EU, Vladimir Chizhov, speaking to the BBC's Andrew Marr. Well, reacting to the ambassador's comments, the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson insisted that the Russian state was to blame for the poisoning. The trail of culpability leads inexorably to the Kremlin. And I think uh, listening to the Russian response, listening again to the, uh, the response of the uh, Russian ambassador to the EU with his satirical suggestion that this was done by uh, UK agents uh, from Porton Down. This is not the response of a country that really believes itself to be innocent. This is not the response of a country uh, that really wants to engage in getting to the bottom of the matter. 
as far as getting to the bottom of the matter is concerned. Mr Johnson went on to say that specialists from the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, would arrive in Britain on Monday. So what we are doing on the the Novichok and on the the nerve agent, what we will do is tomorrow, technical experts from uh, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons uh, will come from The Hague to the UK. Uh, We will share the samples with them. They will then be tested by the most reputable possible international laboratories. So what will those experts from the OPCW do? I've been discussing that with Dr Ralph Trapp. He's a consultant at CBW Arms Control. That's an organisation which helps to uh, works to help promote the global ban on chemical weapons. First, so what does he make of that assertion by Russia's ambassador to the EU that the Novichok nerve agent could have come from Britain's secret weapons research facility at Porton Down? What is possible is that Portendown has referenced chemicals from this and from other categories of chemical warfare agents, uh, like any other laboratory that has done advanced research in chemical defense and in protection against chemical weapons, will have uh, analyzed such chemicals. They will have synthesized them in the past. They will have created databases so they can actually detect them when they appear. But that doesn't mean to say that there is expertise in Portendown about how you then formulate these chemicals into a tactical mixture that can actually be brought out and used in an actual situation. To that extent, I, I don't have any information to that effect. So I think this is a an off-the-cuff reaction, I would say. Just explain when the OPCW folks come to the UK, what will they actually do? What will the procedure be? Well, this is not a regular inspection. This is some sort of a visit by invitation and by arrangement with the UK government. So it will not follow the usual standard procedures, but obviously they will have a briefing by their colleagues in the UK about what the situation, what has been done. And I understand that they're also going to receive some samples to take back for subsequent analysis. I don't know to what extent they will discuss the forensic details of the case, because that's obviously in the hand of the investigating police force in the United Kingdom. But they certainly will talk to the people in the laboratory who have done the analysis. And the British Foreign Office has said that the results are expected not before two weeks. What would happen during that two-week period, do you think? Well, two weeks is probably the time that, based on experience, previous, shall we say, special cases, special situations, is a reasonable time frame to expect for this kind of analysis. We have experience, or the OPCW does have experience, from the work of its declaration assessment team in Syria and from similar activities in the past. So what will happen is they will receive the samples, take them into custody under administrative procedures that will have to be followed. They will then go back to The Hague, to the OPCW laboratory, and they will probably not be analysed there, but they will be analysed by at least two of their designated laboratories. Uh, These are laboratories that undergo rigorous quality assurance testing on a regular basis, and they've demonstrated they can undertake this sort of analysis. The OPCW laboratory will probably control and manage the process. They will prepare control samples to assure the quality of the analysis, but the samples will go to these designated labs, be analysed there, and then the reports will come back from these laboratories. All these procedures do take their time, and also it depends on the kind of analysis that they will be doing. As well as testing for what the nerve agent is, what the substance is, should we say, will they be able to identify with any degree of certainty exactly where it came from? Well, in theory, the answer is yes, not from the chemical itself. Obviously, the chemical will only tell you what it is. It's a chemical that's been made somewhere. But like any other chemical, it has been made with raw materials, so it will carry impurities and signatures that uh, were present in the raw material and that will still be present in the final product. These are things that the laboratories will be looking for. The 
question then is whether they have reference points, reference data from raw materials that they can compare it to so they can actually then pinpoint it. So in principle, you can do this. The question is how good your databases are and how good your access to materials is that you can compare it with. If the OPCW investigators do conclude that the material came from Russia, do you think they will then ask and be granted access by the Russians to conduct further studies? Well, it will lead into a clarification procedure. And I mean, let's be clear, the OPCW inspectors had access to Russian military facilities with chemical warfare agents in the past on a regular basis. They've verified the destruction of the declared stockpiles and so on. Um, Here we would be talking about possibly either research and development context and research for protective purposes is perfectly legitimate. Use in warfare or use for hostile purposes is not. So there are a couple of questions that would have to be answered. It depends entirely on what comes out of the investigation. And of course, it has to be done in cooperation with the Russian Federation. The instances you've alluded to there, presumably the Russians were interested in getting outside observers to verify what they had done. This would be very different though, wouldn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, the Russians were interested, but also the Russians are a member of the Chemical Weapons Convention and of the OPCW. So they signed up to a treaty and they have a legal obligation to accept these investigations. And they also have a legal obligation to participate cooperatively in clarification procedures. So it's not just goodwill, it's also a question of legal obligations and of sticking to the treaty regime. So now that this process is underway, you say that it would be very difficult for the Russians to to refuse entry then, would it, to OPCW investigators? We have the example of clarification missions that were undertaken between the OPCW and Syria. Not necessarily always very successful, but they have brought progress and they have clarified a number of things. So even under very complicated circumstances and in a situation of an ongoing war, these procedures can be applied. At the end of the day, like with any other international regime or with any international process, you need the cooperation of the other party. You can't force it onto them. But Russia has any interest in the Chemical Weapons Convention, its stability, the regimes uh, and the institutions. So I would argue that there is hope that this can be resolved. And the fact that this has taken a couple of weeks since the incident, will that have any impact on the investigation work? Not so much on the technical side. On the technical side, I think the key thing was that forensic evidence has been collected on site where things happened, that samples have been taken and preserved. We also still have victims in in hospital. And so further biological samples, blood samples, for example, could still be taken and nerve agents can remain in the bloodstream or in certain forms in adducts uh, in the body for quite some time. So it's not so much a technical question. It's it's really a question of the willingness to uh, sit down and discuss the details of this matter and try and find a solution to the problem and understand what actually happened. Chemical weapons consultant Dr. Ralph Trapp. Well, as we heard earlier, uh, President Putin has made his first substantial comments on this case. This is what he said. As for the tragedy that you mentioned, I've learned about it from the media. The first thing that comes to mind is that if this had been a chemical warfare agent, they would have died on the spot. It's an obvious fact. It is simply necessary to understand this. Second, Russia does not have such means. We have destroyed all our chemical weapons under supervision from international observers. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. Let's get more now on the impact of the Sergei Skripal poisoning case here in the UK. With the geopolitics of it all still playing out, what do Russian exiles in London make of what's happening? Well, my colleague Michael Innes has been to meet one rather prominent one. This is Mayfair in central London. Boutique clothes shops, big black cars and overpriced restaurants. It's a magnet for Russian money. 
In this wine shop, it is possible to buy a bottle for under $30, but if instead you choose one of the 27-litre bottles of Rioja and a 19th-century Chateau d'Iquem to go with your dessert, you won't have much change from $30,000. A few days ago, we had a tasting with uh, Charles Heisek about some history and about some secrets of how that amazing champagne... Yevgeny Chichvarkin is the owner of Hedonism Wines. Bearded with a twirled moustache, he wears mustard leather shoes, a coat that sweeps the floor, and in his left ear, a silver teddy bear earring attached by a large safety pin. He made hundreds of millions of dollars selling mobile phones in Russia, but fled in 2009 facing charges that were later dropped of kidnapping and blackmail. Since then, he's been vocal in protests against the Kremlin. But when I meet him in his shop, his mind is on another matter, a children's trampoline. Life here is quite comfortable, to be honest, to live without bodyguards and with a very good, fresh air and good weather. Yeah, of course, it's a very comfortable life. From another point of view, uh, it's happened, for example, today. Our neighbors disagreed to sign the petition for the consul to install little trampoline for little kids in a communal garden for everybody that I wanted to do for my own money because I'm kidnapper and it's from the situation with the Skripal it's so dangerous for our neighbours to sign that petition. And is that typical? I mean are people afraid it's to a, associate with you because of your... It's a typical discrimination. So given what's happened in Salisbury a couple of weeks ago has that made you rethink um, your life in Britain? I 100% understand that it's uh, KGB death penalty uh, torture show for everybody who worked for KGB first and for us who criticized Putin too much. I will continue to fight with the consul about trampling and I will support freedom in Russia and freedom of speech in Russia as much as I can. Doesn't that make you a target? Uh, I don't know what is the probability. There is no 0% of probability or 100% of probabilities. It's something in between. And you never know where it's in between. I feel more safe than in Russia, that what I can say. Do you think you still have enemies in Russia? I think the, at least half of the Russian government. There's been a lot of talk about sanctions on Russian businesses, Russians living in Britain, those with connections to the Kremlin. Do you want to see the British government being tougher on those sort of people, or do you think that would just cause more trouble? To do sanctions against Russian businesses in the United Kingdom is like a shooting in your own uh, foot. Freedom of investment, that's what the United Kingdom economy is strong for. But the personal sanctions against Putin and his friends, that's probably the reaction have to be. Because sanctions against country... The reaction will be it just people will support Putin more. The section, sanctions have to be personal against people who create that situation. And it's not a big group of people. 
Yevgeny Chichvarkin speaking to the BBC's Michael Innes. Well, uh, let's end the programme by having a look ahead to what the next six-year Putin term in the Kremlin might mean. His re-election, of course, never in any doubt. But uh, what's the direction going to be? Peter Pomerantsev is a Soviet-born British journalist and author who's written about Russia. Uh, Peter, welcome to the programme. Well, look, you've written a lot about, I guess, the uh, theatricality in many ways of the way that this Kremlin has gone about things. Um, what do you reflect on, first of all, on this election and how it's gone? Uh, well, are you sure you really want to call it an election? It's a sort of ritual where everybody in the country has to go down on one knee and ritualistically sort of kiss the uh, the, the the postmodern Tsar's uh, ring. I mean, it's not really an election. It's a sort of... Uh, it's a you know it's a coronation of sorts that has to repeated be repeated once in a while to sort of signal various various things to society. Well, that's now that's passed, and we we're into the next term. What, what do you foresee? I mean, there are sort of voices out there that say, well, maybe he'll surprise everyone, and having having taken this far more um, robust, shall we say, international view in his previous term he he might surprise us and and uh, be more open to cooperation is that too much to hope for no, no, no quite i mean look look at it this way for the first thing he has to do he has to keep this foreign policy distraction going because domestically his rating is high but that's not the point uh his government's rating which is the way you should really try to value you know evaluate what russians think of what's going on is, is actually quite low and not doing very well and there's a lot of uh economic unhappiness in the country so he can't do anything domestically so he's got to keep the foreign policy sort of cabaret going um and yeah i think he wants kind of like a uh you know, a, a sort of performance out of the Cold War. So he wants to escalate it, uh, remaining on the front pages in the West through various provocations. Uh, and then, yeah, sure, then maybe he could have a, a summit of peace and release the doves of peace with Trump on Red Square and uh, have a new Reykjavik moment. So he's got to keep the whole theatre going with its sort of peaks and troughs and escalations and relaxations. Uh, just keep the movie going. I mean, uh, we, we must be sort of used to this uh, in the West now with Trump. He does this as well. So Putin, Putin has just been doing it for a lot longer. Uh, will it continue to work, though? Will he continue to, to keep this popularity he seems to have in Russia? So hold on again. The popularity, you can't measure anyone's popularity uh, in, a, in an authoritarian system. It has nothing to do with popularity. Uh, you, know, you know, when people say they like Putin, they have no alternative. It's a, you know, when somebody calls you up from a polling station and says, do you like Putin? They're actually asking, are you a traitor and do you want problems? So uh, let, let's just like, you know, sweep away any of these sort of ideas of, of sort of Western style popularities. It's, it's something very, very different. Uh, but, uh, well, people inside of Russia don't have much choice. But he does have to keep people kind of engaged. Uh, he can't let sort of let disgruntlement start to build up because then the uh, the results could potentially be uncomfortable for him. So he's Pete. got to keep people in a sort of uh, uh, excited, I would say. Peter Pomerantsev, thanks for your reflections on what we might expect in the next Putin term in the Kremlin. That's all for this edition of News Hour. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.